Joshua Goldstein is International Relations Professor Emeritus at American University in Washington, D.C., and a research scholar at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, where he lives. He holds degrees from Stanford and MIT, a leading interdisciplinary expert known for his work on the biggest issues humanity faces. His writings appear in textbooks, opinion pieces, and his six books on topics of war, peace, diplomacy, and economic history. He has been thinking and writing about world energy since 1975, when his first scholarly work appeared on the subject. His co-author, Stefan Kvist, is a Swedish engineer, scientist, and consultant to clean energy projects around the world. Trained as a nuclear engineer with a PhD from the University of California at Berkeley, he now helps manage an ambitious solar power expansion, expansion project in East Africa, directs a nonprofit that find, finds energy solutions to power the refrigeration of vaccines across the developing world, and conducts scientific research that has been highlighted in the pages of Scientific American, The New York Times, and other major publications. A new book by these two scholars, Bright Future, explores the novel solutions some countries have found to the looming catastrophe of climate change. The Harvard cognitive scientist Steven Pinker, who has been named one of Foreign Policy's 100 Global Thinkers, is here tonight in a moderator role. In the book's foreword, he said, few books can credibly claim to offer a way to save the world, but this one does. Please join me in welcoming tonight's guests to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you very much, and it's great to be here in my hometown of Boston and uh, in this wonderful building. Back in 1972, I was a 19-year-old in California and a, a devout environmentalist and tree hugger, and I believed that back to nature was good and high technology was bad, and I hated nuclear power. And then a funny thing happened. I, I had children, and my son became a climate activist at age 10 and uh, became a state representative at age 22, and he convinced me to make climate change my top priority. I'm a global trends person. I look at war and peace and uh, global economy. So climate change, top priority. So I started to study climate change, and I realized how very serious the problem is and how off track we are uh, in solving it. You probably agree or you wouldn't be here tonight. Today's weather events are bad, but they're not the real problem that we're worried about. We're concerned about tipping points that could cause an ice age. 12,000 years ago, this location had a mile-thick sheet of ice over it. And if the oceans melt, and that's one scenario that could come about with climate change, if the oceans melt and we get 12 foot of sea level rise, that's what Boston's going to look like. And it's very hard to live with those kind of tipping points. We're not on track to solve the problem. Um, not only are emissions going back up again after falling for a few years in the United States and going up in the world still, but the proposed solutions don't really add up. Just flattening out emissions, you might think since emissions are going up, if we flatten them out, then temperature will flatten out, but that's not the case. We need to get the carbon out of the atmosphere. There's already too much, and every bit we add is making the problem worse. So what we need to do is to rapidly decarbonize. We need to stop very fast 
the process of putting more carbon in. And this is very hard to do. We've never done anything like it as a species. 80% um, plus of our energy now comes from fossil fuels. So switching the whole world economy onto a non-fossil basis in just less than 30 years is an enormous task. And as I thought about how we might be able to accomplish that task, I learned that countries like Sweden and France and Ontario province in Canada had actually already done this, very rapidly decarbonized their economy. And I found that an expert, Stefan Kvist, had been writing about this very process and reached out to him to write a book together. And that's how this book came about. Not because of any agenda favoring one solution over another, but just how can we very rapidly decarbonize. And when he gets up, he'll tell you some of the details about how to do that. I want to first talk about how much energy we need. The amounts of clean energy that we have to put on the grid in the next upcoming decade and two are just vast. And we have to look at the whole world picture. It's not enough to just say Boston is going to clean up its energy supply or the United States is going to take this or that policy. You have to look at the whole world. And not only do we need to replace today's grid electricity, which is predominantly fossil fuel and especially coal, but we also need to expand access to power, and they are expanding their access to the poorer countries, like these people in India who are grinding sugarcane by hand. They want electricity to do that with. They're getting electricity to do that with, and hundreds of millions of people in the world are rising out of poverty because of access to uh, electricity and energy. The trouble is they're doing it with coal now because that's the cheapest and most practical source. Most of the uh, growth in energy supply in the upcoming decades will be in the poorer countries. So we may flatten out emissions in the richer countries. That's not going to solve the problem. We need something for the poorer countries, something for the farmer in India who really wants air conditioning, really wants electricity in the village, wants to be one of those 100,000 people every day who hook up to the grid worldwide. And we need to do it without coal. In addition, as we look forward to decarbonize the world economy by mid-century, it's not enough to just change over today's grid. We're also going to need to electrify transportation. We're going to take processes like uh, steel mills that now run on coal and turn them to electricity, as uh, some can do now. And we're going to need to produce alternative fuels, such as substitutes for aviation fuel and gasoline that are not based on carbon fossil fuels. And all of these uses are going to tell us that uh, all of these uses uh, of energy that have to be decarbonized are going to mean clean electricity at the root. So you can take cheap, clean electricity and produce substitutes for gasoline. You can produce steel without carbon, etc. But it all requires more electricity than just what's on the grid now. And then finally, by mid-century, the climate scientists tell us that we need to start sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. And how, what's it going to take to do that? And the answer is a lot of cheap electricity, again, cheap, clean electricity. So um, when you add it all up, we're just going to need a vast, vast amount. And we can give you the numbers, but I'll just say a very mind-boggling amount of clean energy by 2050. And this is why um, it's so important to, to be able to scale up quickly and to uh, deploy new energy rapidly. Now, how are we going to do that? There are alternatives for where we get energy from. Right now, the leading source is coal. 
It's the predominant power source on the grid, and it's also the leading cause of climate change. We would have a problem if um, coal were the healthy fuel, but the one that was causing climate change. Then we'd have a dilemma. Do we kill people now by taking that healthy coal off the grid in order to stop climate change, or do we do the opposite and we'll have climate change where people will be healthy? But we don't have that dilemma because coal is actually the thing that kills people in the hundreds of thousands every year around the world, and well over 10,000 in the United States every year, killed through particulate matter that comes from coal and uh, when it's burned and causes emphysema and cancer and other diseases. Other alternatives for energy include oil and natural gas. They have a tendency to explode. You might have noticed in the Boston area recently. Hydropower is a good source, but um, sorry. They told me to expect a delay on the slide sometimes. Hydropower is a good source, uh, but it can cause lethal floods. In China in the 1970s, uh, more than 20,000 people were drowned when a hydroelectric dam burst. And they do a lot of environmental damage. Solar power is great in some applications, but um, it does take up a lot of land, produces toxic, um, uses toxic material that has to be recycled after 25 years. So they all have ups and downs. And also solar tends to not produce at night, which is very inconvenient, sometimes for whole seasons at a time. So now we come to what's left, nuclear power. Nuclear power, a lot of people say, no, no, no nukes. We don't like it. You know, It has this or that problem. And believe me, we've heard them all in the last week since we've been talking about this book. Um, the beauty of nuclear power, though, is it's so concentrated. This little South Korean reactor produces 10 billion kilowatt hours per year. And to put that in context, um, that would be to do that with coal would take 25,000 tons of coal, which is a, a coal train two and a half miles long every day. Or if you made elephants out of coal, 5,000 elephants a day marching into the coal plant every day. And yet, the same amount of electricity comes out of this little plant. And the reason is, nuclear fuel is way, way more concentrated, a million times more concentrated than coal energy, which in turn is more concentrated than the renewables. If you take a pound of coal and turn it into electricity to power your average American household, it'll power it for about an hour. If you take the same in nuclear fuel, it'll power it for two years. And this concentration of nuclear power is what makes it the great source to uh, scale up very fast to solve climate change with. Now, nuclear power is also very safe historically, 400 times safer than, than coal in terms of deaths per kilowatt hour. And in fact, it's the safest of all the fuels historically and the friendliest on the environment. And yet, people don't see it that way, do they? We always hear nuclear power, unsafe, terrible for the environment, and so forth. In 60 years of nuclear industry, there's only been one serious fatal accident. That was at Chernobyl more than 30 years ago, and that was the result of mistakes by a government that doesn't exist anymore, the Soviet Union, using a reactor type that nobody would use today. And it killed somewhere between dozens of people and possibly thousands over the long term. You have to compare that to other industrial accidents, like the Bhopal accident in India killed several times that many. Coal, I just told you, kills hundreds of thousands every year. 
So that's one in 60 years. The Fukushima disaster was actually nothing to do with the power plant. There was a disaster. It was an earthquake and tsunami that killed 18,000 people. And people confuse it with something to do with the Fukushima nuclear reactor, which did suffer damage and did leak some radiation, but not enough radiation to actually harm anybody, except uh, about a dozen people who were there on site dealing with it. None of them have died, but there was um, radiation that they got. By contrast, when Japan closed down Fukushima and all their nuclear reactors and substituted fossil fuels, we've calculated that about 10,000 people have died from that cancer and emphysema and all that that comes from burning fossil fuels. So uh, the, the reactor was far safer than the consequences of shutting it down. And then finally, the uh, nuclear waste we hear a lot about. And what people don't understand is how concentrated the waste is. Again, because nuclear fuel is so concentrated, so is the waste. You can live your whole life as an American and generate nuclear waste. Uh, if all your electricity came from nuclear power, it would fit in a soda can. If you do it with coal, of course, it's vastly larger. Right now, we take the nuclear waste from power plants in America. We put it in dry casks out back of the plants. The concrete shields from radiation. I've stood there next to these like these guys are doing with no protection. And they're fine. They're certified safe for the interim. Um, and maybe in another century, we can take it out of there and either burn it in new kinds of reactors that are being designed now or bury it underground permanently. It's not an urgent problem. The waste is fine. It's small. It's fine. It's not like climate change that is so urgent and needs such um, radical action. And then we hear that nuclear power is too expensive. It's just too expensive. And that's because the way we build it in the United States lately is don't build one for 30 years, then try a new design that's never been built before, then change the design and the safety regulation while you're mid-construction, and guess what? You go way over budget. South Korea can build nuclear reactors for one-sixth of what the United States does. And they do it by repeatedly building the same design. So the costs have come down with each time they build it. And it's now, in South Korea, nuclear power cheaper than coal, cheaper than any other fuel. So it's possible to build cheaply. When Sweden did this, also um, very low cost of electricity. In a future build-out, of nuclear power, the reactors could be built centrally in shipyards or factories, and that would bring down the costs even further and use a standardized design, more like an assembly line and less like building a bridge at each site with a specific construction. Now I'm going to turn it over to Stefan to talk about how countries have done exactly this and uh, how it's worked out and how the world might follow. Yeah, thank you, Joshua. Hello, everyone. I Apologize for the next slide. Joshua showed you himself as a young hippie, so unfortunately I have to do the same. This guy <laughs> is uh, protesting Sweden joining the, the European Monetary Union with a really nice slogan, I think. Uh, this word means urinary tract infection, so I think it was pretty catchy. I never expected to show this at a presentation. I usually give like hour-long, boring academic presentations. I'm going to make a snappy 10-minute introduction to some of the themes in the book, and then we'll have a discussion, and you can ask all the hard questions after that. Uh, I was trying to figure out how to present this in a fun way. So when you try to solve a problem, usually when I try to solve a problem, like if something fails in my house, now I always go to YouTube and I just type in how to, and then, you know, there's a video for 
how to make slime without glue in ten ways, uh, how to make fluffy Japanese pancakes, and how to, I don't even know what this is. Uh, but basically, you can use the same theory about how to decarbonize an economy, kind of, and at least how to get the first step there, which is decarbonize the electricity production, which is the low-hanging fruit of decarbonization. It's the easiest thing to decarbonize. Other things will come after, but really this is a way to get there. And all this data is available. We have all of the countries, well, not all of them, but a lot of countries have published their electricity grid makeup from like 1960 till today. We can see how everyone's producing electricity, and we can see if anyone's actually done this. And since I'm Swedish, you might guess that my country for my lifespan has been completely decarbonized. And so what we wanted to look at was what does it look like today? So this is a wonderful website called electricitymap.org, which shows you from all the places that they have data, the dirtiness of power grids across the world. Uh, so for those listening but not here in the room today, electricitymap.org, you can see this. Uh, basically, if you're green, you're clean, and if you're some variation of brown, you're dirty. And so we can see who, are, who is green and who is consistently green throughout the year, throughout the day, throughout the night. What have they done and why are they there? You know, these people, these countries have obviously already found a solution to this problem, at least the electricity grid problem. And so you can see parts of South America, all of these are basically hydroelectric powered countries. They have a lot of hydroelectric resources. They can do that. Same for New Zealand, uh, Tasmania. Then we have, and same for Norway up here. Uh, but the ones that don't rely almost entirely on hydroelectric power has done it in a different way, and I think you know the answer from, from Joshua's presentation. We can zoom in on, on specifically on Europe here and see basically the results of different policies. So there are two, well, three consistently green countries in Europe today, and then there's variations of dirty uh, France is always consistently green. This is the country that's being sued by Greenpeace for their poor climate work, which is a bit bizarre at the moment. Uh, they're consistently green. That is a 75% nuclear-powered country for their electricity grid. Sweden is a combined renewable and nuclear power grid, and Norway just has the greatest luck of any nation. They have you know, abundant fossil fuel resources. They also happen to have enormous amounts of hydroelectric power, so they're just lucky, I guess, from... Just pure luck, they are green as well. But what we can see also is the two renewable leader nations in the world, which is Germany and Denmark, are kind of oscillatingly brown. So when the wind is really blowing, you can see the wind patterns here. When it's really windy, they kind of go down in emissions because their wind power puts out a lot of power. But then they go back to their coal when it's not windy and when the sun doesn't shine. And so we can kind of see the results of different approaches here. And that's, that's one of the bases for the book. What has actually worked? Um, so I could show you this in a little bit different way. This graph shows the whole world's average dirtiness of the electricity grids. And you can see that we've do done nothing. It's basically a flat line. We're producing more and more powers. We're uh, releasing more and more CO2. But for every kilowatt hour of electricity we produce, it's about as dirty today as it was 1990. So nothing happens. Uh, so we can do a few trajectories from the data we have. So the first one is... If we don't build any new low carbons, so no new solar plants, no new wind plants, no new nuclear plants, what's going to happen? Well, we have an increasing energy demand, so the fraction of fossil in that system will increase and will be slightly more dirty. That's what's going to happen. Uh, but then, and this, I guess, is the interesting point, 
Germany has done, I think, the most ambitious effort of any nation ever to build out wind and solar. They're, they're the leader in wind and solar. So what would this trajectory look like if the whole world would build renewable power like Germany has done? And so if you normalize by the GDP of Germany, where does this graph go to and how quickly would we be clean if we use this data? And it's not encouraging. <laughs> That's Germany energy vendor. It barely catches up with the increase in energy demand if the whole world would build normalized by the GDP output as Germany has done. That's not a fair comparison because Germany started their decarbonization program by shutting down all their nuclear plants, but you can only do that once, right? You can't keep shutting down nuclear plants. So the fair comparison is just the positive things that Germany has done, which is build solar and wind, which is wonderful. And then you actually do decarbonize, but you see that if you would extrapolate this one, we'd be, we'd be falling off the cliff. Now the interesting, that, that's a really sad story, and we are here to tell a positive story, which is there are examples of us decarbonizing quickly enough in history, in the data, and this is not controversial, it's just actual things that happen. It's not future modeling, it's just applying what actually has happened uh, to the world. So if the world would build out any low carbon source, like France, build out their nuclear power, so at that rate that they managed to do it, we would actually decarbonize. If the world followed that model and did it as successfully as France did, we would actually have decarbonized electricity globally before the, the mid-century. Uh, and of course, being a proud Swede, we did even better. So uh, <laughs> we built uh, per capita the fastest uh, low-carbon electricity program ever. That was also a nuclear program, and actually, when you look into this data, which is freely available for anyone to download, uh, you see that the fastest the world so far has built any low-carbon energy source, actually the top 10 programs are all nuclear. Then we have little celebrated, what should be celebrated more, I guess, Bulgaria's combined solar and wind program, which uh, normalized by the size of the Bulgarian economy is the most successful uh, renewable expansion program, actually. Uh, down here are Denmark and Germany that are on paper the leaders, but they are nowhere to be seen in actual results. So that's one of the things we stress. It's not just about PR, it's also, well, the, the environment doesn't care about your, your glossy posters, they care about emissions, and that's where they've been failing. Uh, so what does an actual energy transition look like? Uh, I could show Sweden, but the Swedish case isn't really as cool as the French one because we mostly covered our increase in energy demand by building new nuclear. It wasn't really a shift. But France really did shift. Uh, you see, the blue line here is the fossil sources in France, and the red one is nuclear. And basically, they decided to start building it out. And what we see is a complete shift in how they produce their electricity over a period of 15 years. This graph for Germany, those two lines haven't met yet after, well, depending on where you start counting, but roughly the same amount of time, they're not even meeting yet. So the comparison is pretty stark and was pretty surprising when, you, when we ran these numbers. So since I'm in the US, uh, I, I did the same graph for the US, so the US history specifically. Uh, this is the same kind of graph, so it's the dirtiness of the US electricity grid over time. It's become a lot cleaner just from basically switching from one fossil source to another. Uh, natural gas has expanded and knocked out coal out of the U.S. grids. 
which is responsible mainly for this. Now, going forward, if the U.S. would keep building solar and wind as it has, this is basically the rate of decarbonization that you would see. So certainly going downwards, uh, but not nearly quick enough. So you'd have to be expanding your ambitions for that. Uh, but actually, if we apply what the U.S. did in their nuclear program in the, let's say, 70s to 90s, that rate was quite a lot faster than the U.S. is building solar and wind today. So applying that rate today uh, would actually decarbonize the U.S. in a reasonable time frame. Uh, obviously, if the U.S. would build both nuclear and solar and wind, which would be the ideal case, just build all clean power in an optimal way, that would go even faster. And if you'd build like the French, it would be immediate almost. It's just crazy fast. Uh, so within the historic experience of the U.S., if we just stay within what the U.S. has managed to do previously, uh, we can do this plans of how, how you decarbonize. This is not a plan I would recommend. But if you would say, let's do it just with nuclear, just within the historic experience of how quickly the U.S. built nuclear before, uh, this is one way to do that. You could do that by 2050, basically not building faster than you already did in the 70s and 80s. So it's not like, a, it's, it's a big effort for sure, but it's not historically unprecedented. Of course, you don't need to do this because you have excellent wind and solar resources that would help out as well. So this, I, I guess we are trying to paint a positive picture that if you allow all clean energy sources to contribute, this problem is actually solvable. And you have here in Boston some excellent researchers at Harvard and MIT that studied this quite extensively. I've done the same for Sweden, but no one cares about Sweden, so I'm showing uh, <laughs> The, uh, basically, what they're saying is, and what all the modeling is saying, and what the IPCC is saying now, too, is solar and wind are fantastic. We should do as much as we can with them. But if you only do that, getting very, very decarbonized, so very, very clean, is very difficult. And that's basically to do with the fact that the wind isn't always blowing, the sun isn't always shining, and it's very hard and expensive to store electricity. So once you start to get, in this graph, down to zero here, if you have what we call firm low carbon, which is basically hydroelectric or nuclear, the cost to get very, very clean grids is lower, even if that firm low carbon uh, sources cost a lot of money. So even at, this is at the very high cost of U.S. nuclear today, at very, very clean grids, the overall system cost is cheaper, even if you have that expensive nuclear in there. So... I'd recommend you look up, there's, there's a guy called Jesse Jenkins, he works at Harvard, uh, I spent the day with him today. He's got these wonderful presentations explaining why this is, I don't have time to do it, and he does it better than me, uh, but I'd recommend that a lot. So, to summarize, I always use this slide, uh, I usually have one that's called the politics of climate insanity as well, but it's more directed at Europe. Uh, the first principle, don't shut down anything that produces energy that doesn't produce emissions. And for the U.S., obviously, that is you have the bulk of your clean energy comes from your nuclear power fleet. Two-thirds of it almost is of the clean energy in the U.S. is nuclear, and it's all, well, a third of it is under threat of being closed because it's being outcompeted by natural gas that's not paying for its external costs. It's not paying for its pollution to the atmosphere, and so it's being outcompeted by that. Uh, connected to that, make pollution expensive. Make the polluters pay for what they're doing. Uh, and then obviously build new low emissions uh, 
production capacity in the way that I showed. And yeah, well, I don't know from this administration, but uh, ideally we'd fund some research on, on making it cheaper and better. And then we have to trans transition the rest of the economy to clean fuels. So uh, all of this and much more in the book. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, why don't I start with a uh, with one human interest question, which is I have learned that uh, you two, the co-authors of A Bright Future, just met very recently, uh, that you uh, uh, co-authored the book uh, Separated by uh, an Ocean, uh, and uh, we saw the picture that showed the two pictures uh, of each of you showing that, uh, that you uh, did decide to get together. So. How did you find each other? Is there a, a Tinder for climate change uh, experts? <laughs> did one of you both swipe right at the same time, or is it swiping left? Yeah, I uh, was trying to find out uh, all I could about climate change. This led me to nuclear power, and that led me to the Swedish story. And then I began to read articles um, that he had written about it, and so I reached out and said, let's write a book together. The rest is just, uh, we live in a world with the internet, and you can Skype, you know, and, but we just met face-to-face -face on Tuesday, so. <laughs> it's a climate-friendly way of writing a book, really. It sounds like an Orthodox Judaism arranged marriage, or, or, or the, the uh, where's the Reverend Moon, who would have these uh, fixed marriages by, arranged marriages by the thousands, but I'm glad it worked out. Uh, since I have, um, written a, an insight bit about uh, climate change and, and uh, nuclear power, drawing on uh, your work. I myself have been peppered with a lot of questions, which I am now going to uh, deflect to you. Uh, so one of those, why can't we just do it all with a solar and wind? It's so clean, it's so, uh, they're so pretty, it just feels so, so right, and uh, the sun is always shining somewhere, and the wind is always blowing somewhere. What is the simple answer to the question, uh, who needs dirty, expensive, radioactive nukes? Let's uh, do it the way every politician who advocates clean energy says we should do it, which is just so, and every op-ed columnist and every activist, solar and wind all the way. Well, I think there's two ways to answer that question. One is uh, the hard one, which is to model a future energy system and, and see what is the most cost-effective way to get to zero carbon. And if you do that, the IPCC kind of collects a lot of these modeling exercises, and they show that we need expanded nuclear. We need expanded everything. But really, storage is a big problem when... In my home country, Sweden, we have a lot of these people who say we should shut down the nuclear, we should just run you know, solar and wind, but then you get a question that sounds deceptively simple, but it's very difficult to answer, which is you have a cold January morning, the sun isn't shining, and it happens to be no wind. And really, there's nothing to do at that point. There's, there's no, nowhere the power is coming from. So the 100% renewable studies typically assume a fossil fuel backup. And so it's possible to partially decarbonize quite simply without nuclear power, any other firm, low carbon source. But if you want to push it all the way to not emitting anything, it's really, really difficult. It's really, really expensive, even with really cheap solar and wind. And so that's why you kind of need all the different types of players on the field. The second way to answer that question is look at, look at what's actually been happening. Look at the results. We have Germany pursuing this path vigorously. They haven't reduced their emissions at all. 
And we have Sweden and France, for instance, and Ontario pursuing the different path, and they've completely decarbonized in a very short amount of time. So I would just add the world has spent $2 trillion in the last decade on wind and solar, and yet our carbon emissions haven't come down at all. So um, that's an indication that we have a problem. But the, the fundamental problem is you can't store energy that's variable in its production. So if you look right now, the lights are on in here, but the sun is not shining, the wind isn't blowing out there. We just don't have batteries that can hold enough energy for long enough. You hear about, you know, battery storage with solar, that's usually 15 minutes worth when the sun goes down to stabilize the grid from the shock of all the, the solar coming off the grid so suddenly. Stefan did a, a analysis of Europe, of Europe, the entire continent, that showed out of a, a year that he looked at, there was an entire week when neither solar nor wind was producing. So what's going to happen during that week if you've got 100% wind and solar? Either you're going to need batteries that don't exist that can power Europe for a week, or you're going to need fossil fuel backup for it. What if you have the fossil fuel backup and that one day in January you use some fossil fuels, but uh, every other day you use solar and, and wind and, uh, and batteries? That is, just turn, turn it on uh, when, when you need it. Look at, go to the Weather Channel and say, oh, well, next Thursday that's going to be the day with uh, no wind and, and uh, it's cloudy, so we'll just kick it. Turn on our, our uh, natural gas plant on that day and then turn it off as soon as the sun comes up again. That, that is an argument, but it's, it's also kind of uh, unambitious. You still have a polluting system then. For Sweden, we did a study very detailed where we would, increase, would, we would double our carbon emissions just by having to turn on now and then. That is a country with half of our power coming from hydroelectric power. So it's basically the ideal case for decarbonizing with solar and wind. But you still would double our current emissions trying to do that. So it's basically, it's, it's a lot better than today. It's a huge step forward, but it's absolutely not as good as we should be and have to be. But, let's, but Sweden, uh, you've just con convinced us, is already starting from a very low baseline. What about, say, the United States or Germany? Is that scenario uh, at all realistic? That is, you just have it for, have your, 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 your methane plant for emergencies, turn it on for that day a year, and then the rest of the year it's all uh, wind and sun. Uh, well, I think the main problem is not just that day of the year. So uh, these sources are quite correlated. So, it, well, a, if you built a continent-wide high-voltage DC network that you can transmit all the electricity you would want across the entire U.S., you could make that problem smaller, but it's not like it's one day a year. It's, it's really, uh, when you look at the modeling data, you would have a lot of need for this. I think the uh, important point here is that when there's very little renewable on the grid, it's very cost effective to add it. Like in China now, that's a great place. But in the California where you already have a lot, it becomes uh, more and more expensive to try to add it on. And trying to keep an entire fossil fuel system to use one day a year, and of course it would be much more than one, but that's, that's an entire infrastructure that you're supporting that you hardly ever use, and it's just enormously expensive. So it's not like I have a, a Yamaha generator in my garage, and if, if a, uh, a Boston blizzard ever knocked out the power, then I could have some lights to read by, but you can't run a country that way? No, and uh, the economics become very tricky when you have such low utilization rates of a large installed capacity. You need people there to be ready to run these things, and you need fuel there. And 
And in the end, you don't have a decarbonized system. You have, you know, a half or two-thirds decarbonized system, but it's not good enough. It's not, it's not good enough for where we need to get to. That's the problem, I guess. Yeah. Let me uh, switch gears. Another question that uh, uh, you, I'm sure you, you've heard many times, but you didn't mention it today. What about nuclear proliferation? That uh, if you have a lot of uh, zillions of nuclear power plants, some people are going to turn them into bombs. So nuclear proliferation is a good problem to worry about. I, w I worry about it. That's, that's one of my fields. Um, and nuclear weapons are a good thing to be afraid of. It's not good to confuse nuclear weapons and nuclear power. The, a nuclear power plant can't blow up like a bomb, and nor is it a small matter to get material from a nuclear plant and turn it into a bomb. A country can do it. You know, a country like Iran can um, get uranium and concentrate it and eventually build a bomb. Um, usually, almost entirely, that has nothing to do with commercial nuclear power. In Iran's case, it, there was some connection between them, but the international community came in and busted it up and ended up with this deal that now Trump's pulled out of and so forth. But that's, that's a case where they, they wanted to do that, but it didn't work. There are cases of countries outside of the non-proliferation treaty that have built bombs, generally completely unconnected to nuclear power production. Did Israel, North Korea, did North Korea have nuclear power? North Korea does not have commercial nuclear Israel? power. Israel doesn't have it either. And Pakistan has it, but they produce plutonium in separate facilities because it's not efficient to produce it in, in civilian. So if, you, if you're a nuclear power like Pakistan, you're going to do it your own way anyway. Um, so nobody yet has used civilian nuclear power to build a terrorist bomb or anything along those lines. And, um, you know, it's something to keep an eye on. The point here is that the international community has very robust monitoring. Um, the International Atomic Energy Agency, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, these regimes are comprehensive. Almost every country in the world belongs to them, and they're very intrusive. They come into every nuclear facility and put cameras there and put seals on caskets, and uh, they're, they're monitoring it very closely. So it's not like you can just build a bunch of civilian plants and then turn it into a bomb. The, um, so, especially in this country, nuclear power is fantastically expensive, and uh, so it's not attracting uh, investors. And uh, it's uh, when was the last time a nuclear power plant opened in the United States? Was it the seventies? That was a long time ago. A long time ago, yeah. So, uh, but that is you were saying that that is not true in South Korea and Sweden. So, what would it is the problem? mainly in the United States, that we have these bespoke designs. Uh, every site, you have to reinvent the wheel. Is it because there are crushing regulations and um, paranoia about um, uh, infinitesimal safety hazards that drive the price up? So if we were all much more rational about the risks, they would be that much more affordable? I mean, how do we turn, uh, how, how would one change the, the, uh, the cost per kilowatt hour of, of nuclear? Uh, it's, it's a bit of everything you mentioned. I think there was a, an NRC, uh, so the Nuclear Regulatory Commission representative in the U.S. that sometimes said, in the U.S. we have a hundred different types of reactors with two types of cheese. And in France it's the opposite, right? So <laughs> if, you, uh, if you build a standardized design many times, you basically learn how to build it cheaper. Uh, there are a few 
principles in which people who build cheap nuclear power plants follow, which is build several reactors at one site, build the same thing over and over again, and there's a bunch of more details, but, but those are the, the big ones, right? Uh, the U.S. has tried to build new types of reactors that have never been built before. So first of a kind of anything, it's usually a bit more expensive. But if you follow kind of a rational approach, like the South Koreans is probably the best recent uh, case, where they just churn out the same plant ten times over, and by the tenth plant, it's really, really cheap. I covered it. I'm going to... Um Please switch over to questions from the audience, but I have one more question, which is um, there is a, uh, a, a vision of a new generation, a fourth generation of reactors that are either small and modular and you crank them out on, in shipyards and maybe float them to, to sites and you just put them out on an, on, a, on an assembly line and they're cooled with molten salt or something completely different, as opposed to the current uh, plants like the one that you showed from South Korea or that some of us have seen in Pilgrim or, or Seabrook, uh, is there, it, it, it would seem that, that that is a technology, the ones that we have now are kind of a 50s technology and they're big and they're expensive and if you could mass produce them and cool them with, with uh, molten salt, uh, it just seems intuitively so much more attractive, so much less uh, uh, cumbersome and dangerous and scary. Is that uh, something that we're going to do? And, and I'll throw out one little uh, coda to that question, which is just last year, the uh, MIT Department of Nuclear Science and Engineering uh, claimed to have had a breakthrough in fusion. Uh, the technology that, as, they, as the cliche has it, is um, 30 years away and always will be. But they're saying that this time it really is just 30 years away. <laughs> so perhaps comment on in the three options, which is, say, South Korean uh, light water reactors, but just more standardized and faster. Small modular reactors, perhaps cooled by something other than uh, water and fusion. What are the uh, realistic prospects for any of those uh, displacing what we have now? Can I choose all of the above? I, I think the, the way to, uh, that I think about this is a risk minimizing approach. And so it's a high-risk strategy to go and just hope that just wind and solar would do the whole job. It's also a high-risk strategy in some sense to hope that some new nuclear technology will do the job. Even though it makes all sense in the world, I think we have to do what we know how to do at, at the highest rate we can possibly do and try to develop even better solutions at the same time. I don't think we have the luxury of trying to do just one of those things. Fusion, I'm optimistic, but in, as a technology, I'm optimistic. I'm not entirely convinced personally that will make, it will be economically competitive. Uh, but as a technology, I'm optimistic, yeah. So I also think all of the above is the right answer, um, along with uh, plenty of other stuff that we haven't talked about. But if we need to decarbonize really quickly, you know, really, really fast, um, then a proven technology has a big advantage, and that would be the South Korean one that we had the picture of there. Um, you know, build it in shipyards, uh, get the cost down, start producing them by the hundreds instead of by the tens. Now the the uh, South Korean design is a second generation, and can it's a third generation third? design. Okay. Yeah, and so. can that be mass produced off-site? Uh, it hasn't been yet, but it potentially could be. 
Um, the, back on what the lost train of thought about the expense was that what's really threatening nuclear plants in the United States right now is the cheap price of natural gas. We have, you know, it's a blessing and a curse. We have abundant, cheap natural gas, and when it's displacing coal, it's a blessing, but then it's a threat to nuclear plants. Um, it's a curse. You get natural gas generation at, say, three cents a kilowatt hour. Pilgrim is producing at four to five cents a kilowatt hour. And the offshore wind that we're going to uh, invest in in Massachusetts is going to be six to seven cents a kilowatt hour. But the wind is cool and Pilgrim is not cool. The same companies that own, like the Pilgrim plant is owned by a company that is two-thirds fossil and one-third nuclear. So they don't care if they generate from gas or from nuclear. The gas is cheaper and it's politically easier because they don't have to deal with all this anti-nuke, you know, um, paranoia. So they just build a new gas plant and take something like Pilgrim offline. But Pilgrim provides 12% of Massachusetts electricity. It's more electricity than all the wind and solar ever built in Massachusetts. Hydro too. So we're just like, it's like you're taking all the renewables off the grid in June. If you don't know, in June, they're going to shut this plant down with 13 years left on its license. So that's kind of point one is don't do that. You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I can't resist asking uh, at least one more question because, Stefan, you mentioned uh, <clears throat> internalizing the costs of uh, pollution, uh, which means a, a carbon tax, and I've advocated for that as well. But last month, uh, Emmanuel Macron tried that, and uh, people... Um, set fire to cars and spray painted the uh, Arc de Triomphe and, in, in their yellow vests. Uh, is there a, does that mean that carbon pricing, which every, every one who's thought about it agrees that that is going to be necessary, is it both necessary and impossible? Well, you need to be really careful about how the money that you're taxing is coming back into the economy. If you do that wrong, and if you're basically making a regressive tax on poor people on the countryside because they can't drive their cars to the grocery store anymore, that's not going to work. But if you think carefully about how to do how that money comes back into the economy, I think it could work. Sweden has an enormously high carbon tax, enormously high, and it's politically popular. It depends on how, how you structure it. But I, don't, I wouldn't say it's impossible because we have examples where it works. So if you were Macron, you could have done it uh, more, more intelligently, that it would have been not... Uh, you, you, do you have people in the country not paying a carbon tax and people in the city paying it? Or how does it actually differentiate? How do you make it non-regressive <laughs> uh, if it's a fix, if every gallon of gasoline has that surcharge slapped on it? Yeah, I mean, you, I'm not saying I have the recipe for how Macron should solve the gas tax. I think what we were talking about is less the transportation fleet. We just need to subsidize and switch the electric transportation, and we need to clean up the electricity grid. Uh, I'm not sure that's done by making gas expensive, because you need an, a, an alternative to shift to. I mean, if you're on the country, and this is why people get pissed off, because you have rich people in cities that can use excellent public transportation, and they say, oh, you shouldn't drive cars. And then you have poorer people on the countryside that have to drive their cars, and if they don't have an affordable, effective alternative, you can, you, you can raise their gas prices, and all that's going to happen is they're going to start throwing rock, rocks under the Arc de Triomphe, right? So there has to be a systematic thinking about this, I think, and you need to solve the supply side, not just punish people for doing wrong. Okay. We done? Thank you. Thanks to Joshua Goldstein and Stephen Christ. <laughs>